Please take it out and turn in it to John chapter 15. We will start again where we left off last week in John 15 verse 18, and we will go all the way through 16 verse 4. The chapter breaks are not inspired. This is a bad chapter break. So we go through 16 verse 4. You can find the passage on page 902 in the Pew Bible. John 15, 18, page 902. Uh, this will be obvious. It may sound somewhat stupid, but if you are listening to my voice right now, then you are alive. You are living in this world. Everything that you have ever done, every thought, word, or deed has been done in the context of this world. You have never done anything that is not situated in the context of this world. Obvious, right? Graduation season approaches. Congratulations, Hannah Whithauer, who's just a couple more weeks. She's so close. Uh, I think she was like Emma's age when I got here. It seems insane. Hannah's graduating. I don't know how that's possible. But one of the most famous graduation commencement addresses ever given was back in 2005 at Kenyon College by the author David Foster Wallace. It's a fascinating read and an interesting commentary on worship from a non-Christian, a man who understood that we're always worshiping all the time, just determined, depends on what it is that we're worshiping. He would go on to take his life just a couple of years uh, after that speech. It's, go read it. It's very interesting. But he titled the speech, This is Water, and he opens with a parable about two young fish who are swimming along, and they encounter an older fish swimming the other way. And the older fish, as he swims by, says to the younger fish, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the other two fish keep swimming on, and then one of them turns to the other and says, What's water? That's, that's the joke. It's not really a joke. It's more, of a, it's more of a parable. The point being that sometimes the most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and understand. The fish are so surrounded by and consumed in the context of water that they're not even aware of its existence, aware of what it is. We are so surrounded by and consumed in the context of the world that we are often not even aware of what it is. What is the world? If we are so surrounded and consumed by this thing that is the world, if we've never done anything not situated in the context of this world, well, then it seems like it would be a really good idea to be aware of and to understand the nature of that world. That's what we started doing last week. We talked some about what the Christian life is like in this world, what life in light of the resurrection is like in this world. But we left out a key part, maybe a part that we're happy to leave out and ignore if we're honest. We focused more on the response of the world to us, but not so much on our response then to the world. So we want today to, to circle back and consider again how the world responds to us, but then close hopefully convicted and compelled to more rightly and lovingly respond to that world which is hard, because as we saw last week, that world will hate you and persecute you. But why, why is that, really? That's, that's what we want to consider again. One of my applications from Sunday school two weeks ago was that we need to learn to better think rightly about the world. So we're going to try to do together today. 
On Thursday, Peter led us through Deuteronomy 9. God speaking to Israel as they are about to enter into the promised land. And, and Peter argued that God is telling them how they are to live as his holy people in the world. Well, how are we to live as his holy people in this hating world? Well, part of the answer is to begin thinking rightly about the world so that we can then respond rightly to the world. So first, we want to consider again what Christ teaches us about the world here. Three points that I want to draw your attention to about the world. Number one, we need to see that the world hates God. Why is that? Well, point number two, it's because ultimately the world does not know God. And the result of that is that point number three, the world stands guilty before God. This is the nature of the world in which we live. And then we'll transition to our response. But first, point number four, we'll see that the spirit witnesses to the world. And then five, here's how we respond to the world. We witness to the world. So big idea very simple. The world hates. We witness. The world's hatred should actually motivate our witness. Because we need to be careful here. We need to be careful of contempt. It can be easy in our remaining indwelling sinfulness to so focus on the world's wickedness and so focus on the world's hatred to get all worked up and angry about all those terrible people out there and then end up hating all the terrible people out there. End up hating our enemies. Well, they're going to hate me. Might as well hate them right back. No, be very careful of contempt. That's why it is so important to think rightly about the world so that we can respond rightly to the world. We are called to the work of love in light of the world of hatred. The world may hate. We, the church, must witness. This is how we are to live as God's holy people in this hating world, as God's witnesses to that hating world. But we are all of us Witness weak. So let's turn to God's word. Let's seek to grow first in our understanding of the world so that we will not be drawn to love the world in the sense of wanting to be like the world and part of that world, but so that then we can have great pity and compassion on the world and so desire to witness to the world of the great grace and mercy and love of God that is found in Christ. So that's our goal. Here's the world and its hatred, and here's our response of witness to that world. Let me read the text for you. First, John chapter 15. I'll be reading starting in verse 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. But please pay attention because this is what God himself wants to say to you today. John 15, 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember what that I have told them to you. Bow with me. Let's first go to the Lord and ask for his help in prayer. Father, we again have a passage where Christ reveals to us the helper, the Holy Spirit who has come, the Holy Spirit who witnesses to Christ. And so we ask now that you would do the very thing that we just read about in our passage, the very thing that we just sung about in our last song. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that he is living and active, and thus the word that he inspires is living and active. I believe that my words have no hope of accomplishing anything apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would teach us now. We ask that you would help us to better understand the nature of this world. Father, our hearts are still so inclined towards the world to love the things of the world, to be like the world. Father, show us the world for for what it is and its sin and its rejection of you. And Father, I pray that that would overflow in great compassion for the world and for the lost of the world as we understand that we were no better and that we were no different apart from your grace. And so I pray that you would show us the sin of the world, show us our own sin, show us the great grace and love and mercy of Jesus Christ, that we may overflow in affection for him that results in compelling, consistent, compassionate witness to the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, do for us now what we cannot do for ourselves by your spirit, through your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Point number one, the world hates God. Our first point last week was that you will be hated. I want us to see here that the world's hatred of the church is the fruit of the root of the world's hatred of God. But let's actually start with 16 verse 1. Look at 16.1. Look at what, why is Jesus telling us all this? Well, he tells us, look at it. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Right, so, so Jesus is teaching us and he is preparing us for what's to come. We considered this last Sunday. We talked about the importance of expectations. We saw it again Thursday night. Peter's first point was that God does not hide uh, troubles from his people, but he clearly communicates to us the trials that will come to us. Because God loves us, he wants to prepare us for what is to come, the difficulties of what is to come. And so he tells us the truth. Here is what life in this world will be like for those who are mine. He loves us, and so he reveals honestly to us what will come. 
because I love my daughters, I do not tell them that they can be whatever they want to be if they just follow their hearts. Right? Parents, don't tell your children that. My daughters cannot be professional offensive linemen in the NFL. It will not happen. Sorry, girls. It's simply impossible. Trent Brown, New England Patriots. Just go look at him. 6'8", 380 pounds. That's like all five of my daughters <laughs> times three. It, just, it, it won't happen. I don't care how much my daughters believe. I don't care how hard they try, how much they follow their hearts. They will never play offensive line in the NFL. But if they believe that they can, if they expect that they can, when they then inevitably fail, they will be disappointed and devastated. See, listen, expectations are so important. What do you expect the Christian life to be like? Christians are often so shocked when suffering comes. Whoa, what, what's going on here? It's happening. No, no one told me about this. Isn't God supposed to bless me and make my life easy and make it all work out according to my plan? Christians often are surprised by suffering and they find suffering strange. First Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Christians are often so surprised when they encounter the world's persecution and hatred. Whoa, what's going on? I thought they were going to love me and all these things. I've got Jesus and the gospel. Why is everybody so against me? 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John 15.18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Right? Jesus is telling us these things ahead of time that we might not fall away when we encounter them. He says, expect these things because expectations are so important. If you expect easy and hard comes and hatred comes, you will be tempted to fall away. I didn't sign up for this. Yes, you did. If you are a follower of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is that your expectation for the Christian life? The world will hate you, Jesus says. So you should not profess or pretend to be following Jesus if you are not prepared to separate from and be hated by that world. You should not profess or pretend to be following Jesus if you are just like the world, if you are of the world. Look at verse 19 again. The world hates us because we are by grace not of the world. This is who we are. This is part of what it means to be a Christian, to not be of this world. It is something to consider. Does that reality demonstrate itself in your life in any way, not of the world? Does it demonstrate itself in what you love and in what you live for, what you're entertained by? Man, looking back over my life sometimes, what I used to be entertained by and thought was funny and okay and good, I'm mortified, entertained by evil. That was what was happening and what I was pursuing. Does this have an impact on what you watch and what you listen to and how you spend your time and your money? As I've said many times, this is what the Lord used to open my eyes to the fact that I was not a Christian in my early 20s. 
I was very much of the world, like the world, loved by the world. I fit right in. I did and loved all the same things. I was surrounded by the world and accepted by the world and affirmed by the world. But Jesus says here that if you are his, in some form or fashion, to some degree or another, you will be hated by the world. Does anyone hate anything that you believe in? Does anyone know anything that you believe in? If not, if no one knows what you believe in, if everyone loves everything that you're about, is it at least possible that you're not really loving and following the suffering Savior whom the world hated and killed? The world hates the church. Christ is very clear in these, past, these verses. And what we see here is that the root of that, first, is the world's hatred of God. Look at the text again. Look at how many times Jesus repeats this. Verse 18, it has hated me. Verse 20, they persecuted me. Verse 21, all that they do to you will be on account of my name. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. Verse 24, they have seen and hated both me and my father. Verse 25, they hated me without cause. And here's the first and main thing that you need to know about the world to understand it and respond rightly to it. The world hates God. The world is, is fundamentally opposed to the God who made it. Every single person that you encounter outside of these doors, and let's be honest, some of the people inside of these doors, whether outside or inside the doors, if they have not been born again, and dwelt by the Spirit of God, and repented and believed. They are haters of God. This is the world. This is the nature of the world, the fundamental orientation of the people of the world in which we live our lives. And this is what sin is. Sin is hatred of God. Romans 1.30, Paul is talking about the debased mind of man. It says, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Haters of God. In Romans 5, 6 through 10, before grace, Paul calls us weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. Ephesians 2, 1. Again, check, see if the girls have verses 1 through 4. Quiz them after the service. He calls us dead in our trespasses and sins. The sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world. Here's the pattern, the direction, the style of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Sons of disobedience. Living in the passions of the flesh. By nature, children of wrath. That's the world. It hates us only because... It hates our Father. The world hates the very God who made it. The world rejected the very God who entered into it and came to save it. This is the world in which you live. Point number two. The world also does not know God. Why does the world hate God? Because it does not know God. And as we so often do, we hate uh, that which we do not know. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, 
They will hate and persecute Christ's followers on account of Christ's name because, purpose statement, here's why, because they do not know him who sent me. Now skip down to 16 verse 2. 16.2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now pause for a second before we get to verse 3. Don't forget that this is, this, is, this, there's, this is history. There's context to these words. This is Jesus speaking to a specific group of people at a specific time and place. So we need to keep in mind that he's talking first and foremost to his disciples about what is going to happen to them in the coming years. So there are some aspects of what we're reading here uh, that will apply specifically and uniquely to them. Right? You will probably not be put out of the synagogues. I guess if you were to head down to Williamsburg and go into a synagogue and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, you'd probably be put out of the synagogue. But you're probably not going to be killed. Right, so Jesus is speaking first and specifically to the disciples. But he's also then speaking to us more generally. So what we have here are general principles of how the world will respond to the church so that we can um, draw, or, or how they'll draw to respond to the disciples, and we can draw the general principles from that of how they're going to respond to us. So, yes, hatred and persecution generally will be the case for us, though it may look differently than what we read there in verse 2. Now look at verse 3. The question is, why will they do these things? Why the hatred and the casting out and the killing? Verse 3. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. You see, they hate because they do not know. This is the nature of the world. It does not know the maker of that world. The creature does not know its own creator. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, first, we need to clarify what Christ means by no. We obviously use words in different senses. There are different uses of the word no. So there is a sense very much in which the world does know God. And it is precisely because of that knowledge that the world is condemned in its not knowing God in a second sense. This is what Romans 1 is telling us about. In Romans 1, verse 18, we see that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why is man unrighteous? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth does man suppress? Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So he's saying, just, just look around. The bigness and the beauty of the world. There must be something big and beautiful. Behind that. Look at the love in this world. There must be a love behind it. Look at all the minds in this world. There must be a mind behind it. We know God. It's obvious and evident that He exists in the things that have been made. Such beauty and complexity and obvious design in this world point us to the existence of a designer. We just sang it in the first song. The mighty power of God who made the mountains rise. And then we sang how there's not a plant or flower, but makes his glories 
No, right? Everything is screaming to us that God is and that he exists and that he's powerful and that he has made you and made everything. Romans 1 says that man very much does know God in this way. We cannot not know God. But what does man do with that knowledge? They suppress it. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see, the world knows the truth, but it suppresses the truth. The world knows God, but refuses to worship him as God and chooses to worship the creature, the self, rather than the creator, God. The world knows God, but it very much also does not know God. Or it knows God and it does not love God. It knows about him, but it does not know him. And to not know and love the God of life is death. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you. Jesus said they do not know you. In one chapter, he's going to tell us eternal life is that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have Sent. Life is knowing God. I mean, the, the, the thing that we all want, life, that's what we all want. Jesus says it's only found in knowing God. The thing that we are all pursuing in all that we do, all that we think that will make us happy. You think of something, you see it, you desire it. I think if I have that thing, it will make me happy. I'm going to pursue that thing and it will give me the good life, the full life. Jesus is saying all of it ultimately is found only in knowing God. Conveniently, I found a copy of Knowing God at the free book table. So, free book table, sometimes there's good stuff there, and I take all of it so that I can give it to people. Uh, I love this book. Listen, I'm going to leave this right here. This is first come, first serve. Uh, You can take that book if you want it, if you agree to actually read it, because it's one of my favorites. Read it. But Packer writes in this book, Knowing God, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. Do you believe this? What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Do you believe that? I mean, actually, let's be honest, that the best thing in life that will bring you the most joy, delight, and contentment is knowledge of God. That that's the very thing that you were designed for. That that's what is to be the, the aim for the whole of your life, to know God. Again, not to know some stuff about him, but to know him. Really and relationally, actively and affectionately, do you love and delight in the Lord? Do you know him and pursue him as your highest good? Remember, don't ever forget, the devil has far more knowledge than any of us have about God. And yet he hates him. He hates the Lord of life. Do you love the Lord of life. For Jesus says that this is what life is. This is what it means to be a Christian. It is to know God. And what we're seeing in our passage here 
is that all the root of the world's problems is that it does not know God in this way. It knows about him. It's obvious and evident. Just look at the sky and the trees and the things blooming and blossoming. It's so evident. And they suppress it and they reject it. And that's why the world hates God and hates his people. And so then, point number three, that then means that the world stands guilty before God. Look at verse 23, because this could be confusing. Verse 22, sorry. Verse 22. Jesus says there, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now look at 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Does Jesus mean there that the world was not guilty of sin before he came? Maybe if he just hadn't have come, no guilt, no sin, no, no problem. Why are you coming then, Jesus? Of course that's not what he means. You know, basic rule of interpretation, hermeneutics. We always interpret scripture in light of Scripture. We always read what could potentially be confusing in light of, in light of what is clear. Right? We just read in Romans 1 about God's wrath revealed against our unrighteousness. Yeah, that's because we're guilty. Wrath is just the right and just response to guilt. Romans 3, verse 10, none is righteous. 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.19 is an interesting verse. It says that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Or as the King James puts it, so that all the world may become guilty before God. You see, just as God created his world and structured it with various natural laws, right? you jump off the Empire State Building, right? we know the law of gravity, you will plummet down to 34th Street. But just as he structured his world with natural laws, listen, so he structured it with, with moral laws. You sin, moral law, justice and righteousness. Wrongs must be made right. You will incur guilt and objective moral debt that you owe for breaking God's good law. All sin incurs guilt. So Christ cannot be saying that had I not come, they wouldn't have been guilty of sin. So it seems that what he's saying here, I think, is that his coming as the full and final revelation of God is at the same time the full and final revelation of the true nature of the world in its sin and guilt. His coming most clearly exposes the world for what it is. What's this world like? Is it all that bad? Here comes the all-gracious and good and glorious God himself entering into the world, and the world clearly rejects the clear revelation. Right? So what this does is it exposes the central controlling chief sin of the world, which is that hatred of God. There was already all kinds of sin that the world was guilty for, but now it's undeniably clear that it is guilty of the chief sin, the rejection of its maker. What if we saw this? What if we saw pride and unbelief as the, the chief of sins from which all other sins Flow. What if we saw that as the worst thing that could be done? All have done it. All have rejected the good God of life and love, and thus all stand guilty before him. 
Rejection of the clear words of Jesus. Verse 22. Rejection of the clear works of Jesus. Verse 24. Is the rejection of the clearest evidence and revelation of God. And thus it incurs the most guilt. The world stands guilty before the God who made it and the God who revealed himself in it and the God who entered himself into it. The world stands guilty before God. Side note, let's talk about us for a second. J.C. Ryle points out here, his his commentaries are wonderful. Go read Ryle's holiness, read some Ryle. J.C. Ryle points out here on this text that religious privileges are, in a sense, very dangerous things. If you are here this morning, sitting under what is hopefully at least somewhat of a faithful preaching of God's word, I'm not saying it's all that great, but hopefully it's somewhat faithful to the text. If you are here and hearing that, well then you are in a position both of great privilege and great peril. Luke 12, 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. You are being given much right now. Again, not because of me, not because my words are great, but because God and because his word is. In the simple opening up and reading of God's word and the hearing of that word explained, especially the hearing of the revelation of the grace of Christ through his words and works, you are being given much this morning. And much will be required of you. What will you do with? How will you respond to the much that you have been given? Preaching is a very strange thing. You're you're talking. You see me talking, and I am talking, and I'm working from my manuscript, and I'm reading it and preaching it, trying to not look like I'm reading it, um, but I'm really just reading it. But at the same time, while I'm speaking, I'm thinking. At the same time, I'm looking up and then looking to you, looking down and then looking to you. I'm also trying to read the faces of the people. People, for some reason, think that preachers don't see them. I've never understood that. Never understood that. We do. And listen, sometimes, it's not just here, it's wherever, it's everywhere. Sometimes when you preach, people just look so bored and indifferent. Listen, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, and it, actually sometimes, somewhat, it's not. And a lot of that's on me, right? Sometimes I'm going to preach boring sermons. It's going to happen. Regularly, maybe. I don't know. I need to work on that, and I need to learn to better and more effectively and more clearly communicate God's word. But you also are responsible for how you hear the word of God, both when it's well taught and when it's not. Are you bored with the things of God? You should be very careful with that. Spiritual and religious privilege, the knowledge of God, the hearing of his word, is both great privilege and great peril. See, the world here, according to Jesus, stands guilty before God because of how it responds to his revelation. How are you responding to his revelation? What do you think of the things of God? Infinite and eternal things that pertain to the infinite and eternal blessed one. The God of life and light and pleasure and joy who wants you to know him and to know and experience all of those things. I mean, does, does that get you juiced up like just a little bit? 
I can get so excited. Yesterday, the Tawidans got us cookies, and I got to play ping pong. I can get so excited about cookies and ping pong. God, listen, well, seriously, what about eternal joy? Do not be like the world here. God's people love God's word. By grace, God's people don't stand guilty before God. All of that sin. And I could tell you, I could tell you some stuff and you would never listen to me. All of that sin. Not guilty. What? I will not eternally suffer justly for that sin and guilt. And you know what the response to that is? Gladness. Oh, happiness, contentment, thankful for the grace that cancels guilt, and thus more and more interested in and passionate about that grace of God that did all that for me. But the world, they heard, and they hated, and they stand guilty before God. You are hearing at least somewhat about Christ and his grace and the revelation of who he is and what he has done. How are you going to respond to that? Because this is what fundamentally defines the nature of the world. This is the world in which you do everything that you do. It hates God. It does not know him. It stands guilty before him. So what? And how, how should we then respond to that world? Point number four. And this will be our focus next week. Briefly here, uh, then more next week. Point number four, the spirit witnesses to the world. Look at verse 26 and look at the shift. I want you to see this shift. We've had world, 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 hate, doesn't know, guilty, 26, but God, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness. Don't, don't miss that. that that's, that's amazing. Yes, the world will hate you. Yes, the world hates God. Yes, there will ultimately be judgment for the world, for that chief of sins. But first, first, mercy. I want you to see the love and the grace of God in verse 26. The world hates God. It does not know him. It stands guilty before him. And his response is he sends his spirit to bear witness to that world. To bear witness about what? Into verse 26. I didn't finish it. And he will bear witness about me. You see, instead of immediately sending judgment... God first sends Jesus. Peek ahead to chapter 16, verse 14. Uh, chapter 16 and 17. Guys, he's so excited. Chapters 16 and 17 are so good. Peek ahead to 16, 14. Jesus says that he, the Spirit, will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is who the Spirit is. This is, no, this is how you know the Spirit is in a place. Someone came here once and said, I feel the Spirit in this place. What does that mean? I don't know what you mean. Is Christ being exalted and being glorified? That's where the Spirit is. That's what he's doing. 
See the grace and love of God here. The world hates God. It does not know him. It stands guilty before him. And he sends his own son to bear witness to that world and to suffer and die in that world for his people who were part of that world. And then he sends his spirit to bear witness about him and his grace and his mercy that is offered to all in him. And he has been doing that now for 2,000 years. This is our God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we see that so clearly in sending uh, the witnessing spirit of truth who continues to speak and convict and call, who maybe even be doing that right now for some of you. Because this is how he does it. He does it, he does it here. He does it through this, through that word read and through that word uh, proclaimed, through that word just shared together as you encourage one another with that word. This is how the spirit works. We'll see next week that he bears witness in two primary ways. First, by inspiration, as he inspires the words that we're reading and studying right now, the very words of God, as they're inspired by the Spirit, the living and active Spirit. Thus, we have a living and active Word. And so the Spirit testifies first in the inspiration, the writing and recording and preserving of that Word through the apostles. And then second in the illumination of that word for us. And have you experienced that yet? Have you had that, that, that light switch flip moment? Oh, you've been hearing it your whole life. And then all of a sudden, oh, I now, now I see it. Now I get it. Oh, my sin. Oh, my Savior. I once was blind, but now I see. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit bearing witness. That's why we pray for God to open our eyes, to work by His Spirit through His Word. That's why we just sang, Speak, O Lord, as we come to You to receive the food of Your Holy Word. That's the witness of the Holy Spirit, and this is a witness-bearing Word. It is a working Word. It is a helping Word as it reveals to us such a God of grace and mercy. A God who would continue to witness to a world of such hatred and ignorance and guilt. A God of the gospel. A God who sees us in our ongoing struggle with indifference to the things of God. Who knows that even in knowing him, I can still struggle with boredom and apathy. How I could still get more excited about cookies and ping pong. And yet, he's still patient with me. And he loves me. And he continues to bear witness to me through his word. And as he does that patiently, he's, he's calling me back to him again and again and again. No, 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 no. Life is found here. No, not there. Here. Life is found here. And he bears witness and he bears witness and he bears witness. This is the God whom we serve. Now listen, his patience with me does not excuse my indifference. It does not motivate me to continue on. Oh, look, great, so I can continue caring more about the things of the world than him. No, his grace towards me motivates me to change. Oh, look how good he's been to me. And to pursue him and to prayerfully beg and beseech him to help me 
to fill me with a growing love and affection for him that crowds out all those other competing affections. And that happens as I am confronted again and again and again with his unceasing grace toward me. And I see that even here in verse 26. And so I'm reminded that that when I may be tempted to hate the world and write off all the wicked people out there, and I see that God here continues to bear witness to that world by his spirit, that must then mean point number five, that I, that we, are then to also bear witness to that world. So look at verse 27. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So again, yes, that applies first to the apostles, first and foremost to them. But it applies to us as well. Both Peter and I read 2 Corinthians 5.21 last week. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The very next verse is chapter 6 verse 1. Paul goes on to say, working together with God, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The King James says, as workers together with God. Pretty cool. Workers together with him. And what's the work? It's witness. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, we are ambassadors For Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How can that be if you've just heard that you hate God and don't know him and stand guilty uh, before him? Well, it's only possible because of the gospel of God. It is only because of the good news of the grace of God that sends the Son of God to take the guilt of God's people and bear it for them in their place so that we could be forgiven and restored to God. And you receive that only by faith. Only as you see your sin and hate that sin and turn to Him and believe and receive what He has done for you in your place. But church, this is what we are bearing witness to. We are bearing witness not to ourselves. We are bearing witness not to our own theological system. We are bearing witness not to our great story of uh, what we did and how we saved ourselves, basically. No, we are bearing witness to the Christ who saves sinners. Such sinners like us. By taking on that sin and dying in our place and rising again. The guilt of sin is a debt. The debt must be paid. The gospel is that God himself pays the debt for us in Christ so that we might be reconciled to him, restored to him, and live. And don't ever forget, by the way, that he is the God of true and full life. And the thing that you are looking for and all the things that you're pursuing, it's found ultimately only in him. All the pleasure and peace, the love and the joy, it's found only in him. And if we are found in him entirely by his grace, again, that should make us glad. No hell, only heaven, no death, only life, no misery, only joy forever. That's what God has done for us in Christ. That's what we're talking about when we talk about 
witness. Listen, I know that we so struggle with witness. I know we're not going to solve all of that right now. Maybe part of the problem is that we are thinking of witness wrongly. Today, all I want to do is encourage you to try and think first of witness as worship. I want you to try to think specifically of witness as worship, as praise. I've been so helped over the years by C.S. Lewis's commentary on the Psalms. Lewis is, is wrestling with why God so frequently commands us to praise him. He just couldn't quite figure it out. It sounded so egocentrical and just so weird and strange. And then kind of Lewis writes about this, and he says he was struggling with it until he realized that all enjoyment, all enjoyment, spontaneously overflows into praise. And not only that, but cannot help but encourage others to join in on the praise. Oh, isn't that good? Did you, did you try that? The baklava cookie at Chip today, you're going to get the cookie, it's so good. Have you, I mean, we can't help but, but overflow in encouraging others. Did you, did you see it? And then Lewis writes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. The praise is the appointed consummation, the fulfillment of the enjoyment. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. You see what he's saying there and how important this is and how this could maybe help our witness. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. You know, I, I am by nature a great grumbler. I am a chief of complainers and I hate it and I want to be done with it. I want to be a person of praise. I want to be childlike in my enjoyment of life and the gifts of God and especially the things of God. And then I want that joy to overflow in worship and words. I want to so love that I must speak. I'm sure that some of you get tired of my same old illustrations. I've read lots of books about writing, um, though I've never written anything. Oh, well. Uh, but, but one of the tips for new writers that you'll see in every writing book, every one of them, is write what you know. So they'll always tell you to start. Write what you know. There's an old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip where Calvin is writing a novel. The tiger Hobbes comes and asks him what it's about. And Calvin replies, it's about a guy who flicks through TV channels with his remote all day. And as Hobbes just leaves and walks away dumbfounded, Calvin yells, they say to write what you know. Right? You see what he's saying? It's like it's a joke. All he did was watch TV. So that's all he could write about was watching TV. But just as you write best about what you know best, so you talk best about what you know best. You talk most about what you know most. You talk best and most about what you best and most love. It's just, it's just basic truth. You talk about what you know and love. And so as a preacher seeking to illustrate truths from God's word, you are sadly somewhat stuck with what I most know and love. So you're going to always get reading illustrations you're going to always hear something about Carolina basketball, probably. You're going to get running illustrations, food illustrations, and illustrations with my daughters until they cut me off from those. Listen, that's all I got. I don't have anything else to tell you about. Because after Christ and his church, that's about all I really care about. 
my family, and those few things. But because I care about it, I learn about it. I have a whole section of my bookshelf devoted to parenting. I have a whole section of my bookshelf devoted to running. My wife has a whole section of cooking things because I so love to eat uh, the food, right? So because I care about these things, I learn, and thus I know about them, and thus I talk about them as an expression of my love for them. I was with my sister this week, my older sister, who I'm closest with and I love and I miss her dearly, um, but she always loves eating with me and cooking for me because I, I audibly enjoy my food. My food is so good, and it's so much more fun to enjoy it. And so I embarrass people and my wife sometimes because I'm moaning about, oh, ah, did you have that? Did you? Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I, I get excited, and I make a fool of myself sometimes in the pulpit probably because I really do love preaching. I talk about running and the reading and, and my daughters because they really are so good and I enjoy them all and I want you to know about them and enjoy them all too. And I enjoy them even more as I praise them and as I talk about them. The, the, the praise consume, uh, consummates and completes the enjoyment. Listen, that's witness. That's what it is. It's not some canned presentation of four laws that you got to get the thing out and knock on the door and say, oh, it's awful, I don't want to do You know that? What we're called to do here is to take that which is infinitely valuable and delightful and enjoyable, which is Jesus Christ himself, the God who became man and suffered and died and rose again to save us from our sins, is to take that and speak. I want to more love him and enjoy him so that my praise of him will more naturally overflow in witness to the world and witness to you all so that yours can then overflow to witness to the world. And so listen, I know that part of the problem for many of us is that we simply do not yet love and enjoy Jesus all that much. We're being completely honest with ourselves. And so that's what I want to leave you with. As we close, I cannot guilt you into witness. I will not be able to convince and compel you to speak more of Jesus by berating you and making you feel bad. All I can do is seek to more and more know and love and treasure Christ myself so that I can better preach and proclaim him to you and not preach about him, but, but preach him in all his beauty in glory, all his goodness and grace, all his kindness and compassion. The world hated him and did not know him. And he came to that world. And he entered into that world. And he died for the sins of his people in that world. Yeah, there's nothing else. Nothing else compares to that. There's no other thing that you need. Only Christ. Only a growing knowledge and affection for him. And then as that comes, you'll, you'll start to speak about him. It. It, it'll start... To come out. I was in an Uber the other morning, and it was like six o'clock in the morning, and I already had come up with my reason. Six o'clock in the morning, I'm still asleep. I'm off the hook. Doesn't matter. Okay, yeah, some Christian song came on the radio. I was like, oh. it's like, oh, you, you're Christian? He's like, no, no, I don't know. I just turned the radio on. Well, great, we got to talk. But I didn't want to do it. It's, but, but I did, by the grace of God, and we had a good conversation. He said he was going to come. He didn't come, of course. Um, but again, there was at least a growing desire to actually talk about these things a little bit more simply because Christ is so good. Because we talk about what we know and love. So yes, your application is witness, get over it, speak, have that conversation you've been putting off. Speak more openly and boldly in your home, your school, your workplace, 
But first and foremost, throw yourself into the study of God. I'm going to be very offended if this book is still sitting here when I come back from being outside. One person should want to read this book that is all about the knowledge of God that gives life and joy and pleasure and peace. So throw yourself into the study of God. Believe that this word is actually living and active. And if you don't do that, if you don't really believe that, admit it. Tell that to God and ask him to help you believe that. Cry out to the Holy Spirit to open your eyes that you may behold wondrous things out of his law, that you may behold Christ out of his law and love him. And then you will more and more uh, not be able to help but speak of him. Just as you enjoy whatever it is that you most enjoy and then overflows into praise of that thing, you will more naturally and joyfully speak words of praise and enjoyment of Christ as you witness to his love and grace that saved sinners such as you and me. I have a long ways to go. You pray for me, and Mike and I will, will pray for you as well. But church, listen, this is how we are to respond to the world, even when the world hates us. This world that hates God, does not know God, stands guilty before God. Let's be clear here as we end. And such were some of you. Such were all of you and me, apart from the grace of God. We were just like the world. No better than the world until the grace of God broke through and pulled us out. Listen, what that does, what that should do, is that should give us great pity and great compassion for all those people out there who are still stuck in their sins. Sometimes we get so upset. You see that sinner out there sinning? We see the wickedness of the world. and we're like, oh, why, why are they so wicked? Because, because this is what the world is. Why are we surprised when sinners Sin. We were no different until God's grace. And so we should look at them and not with contempt and not with hatred, but we should see that they were no different from us and thus not hate them, but long to patiently and lovingly bear witness to them, knowing that this is how the Spirit witnesses. And he has tasked us with being that witness. And thus we see that we were no different than them and say, I at least want to share with this person about the Christ who rescued me and gave me life. And so our response to the world of hatred is loving witness to the world. Love Christ. Love those around you. First here, the love for Christ overflows in our love for one another, but then love your neighbors as well, even if they hate you, and love them first and foremost by speaking to them of the love of Christ that saved a God-hating sinner just like The world may hate, but we must witness. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, our prayer as we close is simply that you would help us to love Jesus Christ. Father, the nature of sin is for our loves, our affections to be out of line and disordered and to love ourselves and love other things more than we love you, the God of love the God who made us, the God who made us to be known and loved perfectly and fully. And yet we have all rejected that in our sin. And yet you came for us and you rescued us at great cost to yourself. Father, may we see, give us eyes to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you fill our hearts 
with a growing and abiding affection for him. And may that affection for him overflow in a loving and compelling and compassionate witness to the Christ who is the only hope for anyone in this world. Father, we want to be your witnesses. We want to desire and delight in testifying to the truth of what you have done to save us from our sins and how happy we are in you. So we ask for your help. We ask that you would make us your witnesses, and we ask that you would do that by giving us a great love for your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.